Well, good morning. Our scripture this morning is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 and verse 16. When I was a kid, these were the verses we always hated to read. In, in the old King James Bible that I was raised with, it used to say, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. So we referred to these as the begats. And nobody wanted to read the begats because we got all the names wrong and we struggled through them. And so the question that was always behind that is, why on earth would you read the begats? That's the part that everybody skips. And we're going to find this morning that there's some great reasons for reading the genealogy of Jesus, which we're going to focus on this morning. So, here we go. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And skip down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Merry Christmas to you all. We're going to focus on the genealogy of Jesus, and I think you'll come to see there are hidden treasures in the genealogy of Jesus. Let's pray for a moment. Lord God, we thank you for gathering us here this day, and we thank you for this season when all eyes and all hearts turn toward the message of the arrival of Jesus. I pray that over the coming weeks you would create a sense of anticipation for us to experience in a fresh way what the gospel of Jesus means for each of us and what it means for us to think about a time before Jesus had arrived and taken on flesh and come into this world and how much has changed for our good because you have sent him as your chosen one. Lord, so we thank you for the, the opportunity that we have to worship today, to, to sing carols, but also to ponder deeply in the way that Mary did, and to treasure these stories that are surrounding the birth of Jesus and that lead us to understanding your mission to the world. Lord, thank you for each person who's here today as part of North River, whether they're here in person or whether they're watching online. I pray that you would continue to draw us closer and closer to the heart of Jesus, that we wouldn't leave Jesus stuck in the past in history that we wouldn't change the message, but that we would humbly bow before him. And in a new relationship with Jesus, that you would reignite our lives and our sense of purpose and our sense of understanding of, of who you are and what you are doing with each of us in this world. Thank you for guiding us through the various challenges that we experience in life. We recognize we are, we are living in a very troubling and perplexed world right now where we don't have the answers to either the the illnesses that are around us or to the, the unfolding of the future. But Lord, thank you for walking through every day with us, whether it's a dark day or a bright day. We pray that you would give us hope and that hope, that, that hope would be rooted and established in the identity of Jesus and in his love for us. So Lord, let that love spill out from, from all of us here today to our family members and our friends wherever we go. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 
On Thanksgiving, I overheard a conversation between two of my family members as they began talking about buying one of those genealogy gifts from Ancestor.com. Don't worry, that that family member doesn't watch our services or doesn't listen online, and so that person's not going to figure out that this is coming. But it seems that interest in these gifts have skyrocketed since the dawning of Ancestry.com and Henry Louis Gates Jr.'s PBS show called Finding Your Roots that often traces the genealogical backgrounds of well-known people. Anybody ever watch that show? Channel 2 or no? A few of you might be familiar. Well, Gates and his team dig through information that they find in immigration lists, church baptismal records, official registries of births, deaths, and marriages from city halls, and they weave these records together to tell a compelling story about surprising personal origins. Often, Gates is able to reveal stories of great hardship encountered by ancestors who immigrated here to the United States or he's able to fill in missing gaps regarding family histories that have been lost due to wars, divorces, or incomplete records. I watched one episode where Professor Gates traced the background of jazz musician Branton Marsalis. Marsalis, who is African-American, assumed that his family had come from slaves here in the U.S. He was surprised to discover that he had a third great-grandfather whose name was John Reinhardt Learson, who was a white man who immigrated from Germany and married a free woman of color in 1851. They weren't slaves at all. And with a Dutch great-great-grandfather on the Marsala side of the family, he found that his family roots were more than 35% European. Have you ever had one of those moments when you pinch yourself and you ask, how did I get here? Who, who am I, and, and, and whose shoulders am I standing on? Well, it's interesting. We find when we look at these genealogies that God continually moves people from the margins of what he was doing to the mission of delivering new life with Jesus. Today, as we're moving closer and closer to Christmas, we're going to take a fresh look at some of the people who were in and around the original Christmas scenes. The people we will be looking at were all in danger of spending the very first Christmas on the margins. However, consistent with the whole purpose of bringing Jesus into the world, we're going to see how God moves unlikely people from the margins into the middle of his mission. So Merry Christmas to you all and welcome to North River Church. I'm glad that you're here today. I'm glad that we can experience and build our excitement as we move toward Christmas together. Welcome to all of those of you who are watching online as well. We're glad that you're here and you've joined us today. Let me encourage you, if you're watching from home, take hold of some bread and some juice or wine so that you can celebrate communion with us at the end of the service. If you walked in and you slipped in one of the doors and you didn't see that basket, you may want to slip out and grab a communion kit so that you'll be ready because after the message, we'll celebrate communion together. Today's question, have you noticed how several people who are part of the original Christmas story start off as outsiders or as people who are on the margins, and yet they are drawn closer and closer to the heart of what God is doing. That's going to be our focus for the next three Sundays. Today's topic is from the margins to Matthew. We're going to look at some of these people in the genealogy who start off on the margins of knowing God and what God is doing in the world, but they become a part of the story because God enfolds them into his story. Here's the big idea for this morning. The God who moves outcasts from the margins to the line of grace can redeem your story too. 
We're going to look at three discoveries from the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Here's the first discovery. This is the genealogy of a king. That's the way that this is written. Look at verse 1 and verse 6 with me. Verse 1 says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There are a whole lot of ties that are in that one, that, that one verse. And then we jump down to verse 6 where it says, and Jesse the father of King David. First, there, there's a question that people often ask when they read through the genealogies in Matthew's gospel or in Luke chapter 3. Why are there two genealogies? The New Testament includes these two genealogies, uh, one in chapter 1 of Matthew, one in chapter 3 of Luke. Matthew presents what we call a descending line. In other words, it starts with people in the ancient world and moves forward. So it's a descending line from Abraham through to, to David and to Joseph and ultimately to Jesus. Luke presents an ascending line, meaning it goes from Jesus back through David, Abraham, and even all the way back to Adam. It appears that Luke presents the line of Mary going backward, making Eli or Heli, depending on the translation you're reading, in Luke 3.23, Joseph's father-in-law, Joseph the, the, the husband of Mary. This line establishes that Jesus was a blood descendant by tracing her lineage back to David through Nathan, one of David's sons. Matthew's interest is in validating Jesus' royal heritage and the legal descent through David to Joseph, who was Jesus' legal, although not biological, father. This traces the line of David through Solomon, David's successor to the throne of Israel. So there's a bloodline on one side, and there's the throne of succession of the, the royal line or the kings. Together, they show that Jesus was well qualified to take the throne of David when he came. What makes this a genealogy of a king? Matthew includes the, the, the title, Son of David, in the opening verse. That may seem very simple to you or to, to some, but Son of David was more than pointing out a relational tie between David and Jesus. It was a title referring to one who comes in the spirit of Israel's greatest king. It meant that the bearer of the title was the long-awaited deliverer of God's promises. People who were desperate for the fulfillment of God's promises could hear this, while some of the people who were prideful, wanting to fit Jesus into their agenda, could not. Think of the differences between the Pharisees, for instance, who almost went apoplectic when somebody would use the title Son of David in referring to Jesus, and then some of the other people who are, appear on the margins of the Gospels. There's the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15 whose daughter is demon-possessed. And she sees Jesus walking by and calls out to him, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. So here's a woman with no theological training, none of the prestige of the religious leaders of Jerusalem, and she gets who Jesus is. Well, the Pharisees would have gone nuts in hearing that title. Or uh, think of the two blind men on the road to Jerusalem as Jesus is making his final trek toward Jerusalem and Jesus is walking down the road, moving through a small city and these two blind men call out virtually the same thing. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. He says, what do you want? We want to see. The simple reality is they already saw who Jesus was and they had the faith to embrace that title that son of David was a royal title that meant he was coming to take the throne of David. He was the rightful ruler that God had put in place. The Pharisees, again, went absolutely crazy when they heard people using that title. Why could they see who Jesus was? They were people on the margins 
who were desperate to see God's promises finally fulfilled. And they were able to see what the Pharisees could not. Matthew deliberately uses another title, the title of King David in verse 6 of this genealogy. Flawed as he was, David was the greatest of Israel's kings. For most of his life, he demonstrated a heart after God's own heart. And so the Lord God promised David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that one from David's line would establish God's throne forever. He says, your throne will be established forever. In other words, there will be somebody who rules on the throne of David for all eternity. Now, historically, that line was broken when Israel was, was finally destroyed and Jerusalem was, was burned. But the people, the line of people kept going, and Jesus falls into that line. And Jesus is the one who reclaims that title and who ultimately will come at the end of history as we know it. He will return this time, not in shadows, not in simplicity, but in glory and in power. And he will gather his own. That's what the the New Testament is leading toward. This genealogy begins with a book that ends as Christ is crucified and called out as the King of Kings. What we discover is that all of Matthew is a gospel about the royal identification of Jesus. And so it's fitting that part of this genealogy is there in order to show us the royal line that Jesus came from and the the royal line that Jesus was able to reclaim. This is a genealogy of a king. Here's the second discovery that I made this week in thinking this through. This is a genealogy of grace. It is more than just the story of who Jesus was. It is also the story of some of the people who are contained in these verses and whose stories are just briefly referenced. Those who were tremendously biblically literate Jewish people of the first century would have heard these names and the stories about them that come from Genesis and Exodus and other books of the Old Testament. It would have come flooding back into their minds as if to say, oh, that's why we read about these people and studied these people years ago. So in verse 3, and I'm picking my way through, leaving out verse 4, but 3, 5, and 6 says, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. You might wonder, why are these names specifically included? Matthew's genealogy includes four outcasts who were once on the margins of what God was doing. The first of these outcasts was a woman named Tamar. She was a childless Canaanite widow. She wasn't a Jewish person at all. And so it's amazing that she's included in this this line of Jesus, the Messiah, the Jewish king. Tamar was married to a man named Ur, who was one of the sons of Judah. And Judah was one of the older brothers of Joseph. Remember Joseph with the coat of many colors? While Judah talked his brothers out of killing Joseph, he was the one who hatched the plan to sell Joseph to the Midianite traders who were coming through. They sold him for 30 pieces of silver, and he was taken down to Egypt where he was, he was a slave initially. When, Joseph's old, when Judah's oldest son died, that left Tamar as a widow, and Judah refused to give his youngest son to Tamar as a future husband. 
Remember what we talked about the last few weeks from, about the Leveret Law from the book of Ruth? Well, this is where Ruth ties directly into our story today. It's a complicated story, but that, that Leveret Law applied to the condition that Tamar found herself in as well. Her first husband, who the oldest son of Judah, died. And so she was then married by the second son. And he also died, and neither one had children. There was a younger son. And so uh, Judah tells tells uh, Tamar to wait until this younger son is older. But then she re- he refuses to give that son to Tamar in, in marriage. And so Tamar is waiting and waiting and waiting. And she finally realizes that she's been wronged. She's been left out. She's been branded as something of an outcast. And Judah wants nothing to do with her. She had every right to demand his sandal and spit in his face. Remember we talked about that last week from the book of Ruth? And to shame him. One of the things that would often happen is after that woman who was denied that future husband would be left alone, she was to take the man's sandal and to slap him in the face, spit him in, the, in, in his face, and then to say, this is what happens to a man who does not provide for his family in Israel. That's that really a shame-based activity. So Tamar is in this situation where she has every right to make that claim toward Judah, her father-in-law. After Judah's wife had died and Judah still had not kept his promise to her, Tamar got desperate. And I know the Bible doesn't condone all this, but it includes it in the story so that we know the cast of colorful characters who ultimately were outcasts who become part of the story. And Tamar dressed up as a prostitute, and she sat at a very public crossroads where she knew that Judah was going to cross by. She didn't say a word to him, but without knowing it was her, Judah then makes a deal with her, and he sleeps with her. And in lieu of payment, he left his his ring and his staff and a few other items as collateral. The next day, he was going to send his servant back with money in order to collect his belongings. But by the time his servant came to collect those things and pay her, she disappeared. When word got out some months later that Tamar was pregnant, Judah was indignant, and he wanted to have his daughter-in-law punished, and he even even recommends that she be burned to death. Nice guy, right? Remember, this is the same guy that sold Joseph into slavery. he's, He's got a very spotty history. But then she does something very smart. She pulls out Judah's things, his ring, his staff, uh, the, the other stuff that belonged to him. And she says, very well, I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And the servants who came to bring her to punishment instantly recognize that Judah was the father. And Judah is exposed in that moment. And at the end of that episode, Judah says of Tamar, she was more righteous than I. In other words, what she was trying to do was to get what she was legally entitled to have, even though the man in power in her life was preventing her from that. Tamar gives birth to twin sons, Perez and Zerah. Perez being the firstborn ends up being included in this line, the genealogy that leads to King David and ultimately to Jesus. John MacArthur writes about this scene and he says, God's grace fell on all three of these undeserving persons. And so Judah and Tamar and Perez are all listed in the lineage of Jesus. While Tamar pretended to be a prostitute, Rahab, the next woman who's mentioned here in the genealogy, was a prostitute. 
In the days when the people of Israel were moving into the land of Canaan for the first time, Joshua sent out two spies to check out the city of Jericho. Some of you know the story of Jericho. When the city gates closed at night, these two spies were hidden in the home of Rahab. They'd gone to the home of the local prostitute, and she took them in. Rahab had a home on the wall of the city. And when the guards came for the two spies, she hid them under piles of flax on her roof and told the guards from Jericho that the two men had already escaped, and if they moved quickly, they could catch them somewhere outside the city. And then she told the two men to stay hidden until morning. And then in the early dawn hours, she lowers them by a rope over the wall of the city and they escape. But she made them promise one thing. And that was that when God finally gave them the city of Jericho, that they would rescue her and they would preserve her life. And she said, I've seen how all the leaders of our city are trembling. They are quaking in fear when they hear the name of the Lord God of Israel. And she said, I realize when I see that happen that the Lord God of Israel is the true God. She had already become a woman of faith by simply hearing about God and seeing the reaction of her own people. And she said, so when God gives you our city, remember me and preserve my life. And God's grace fell on Rahab. Rahab, the woman with an unsavory past, becomes a woman of grace. The third outcast was Ruth, the Moabite widow. I'm not going to go into detail there because we spent the last four weeks uh, working through the story of Ruth. But Ruth had done nothing wrong, but she was a Canaanite, part of an idol-worshiping culture, who makes that choice when she says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, after uh, her husband had died and Naomi's husband had died, I will come with you. I will go with you to Bethlehem. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you go, I will go, and there I will be buried. And she makes that commitment, not only to her mother-in-law, Naomi, but to Naomi's God and says, I'm going to trust that God will have a better future for me in a land where I'm going to live as an alien. The fourth of these outcasts listed here in this section is Bathsheba. Her name isn't there. She's simply listed as the wife of Uriah. King David had an affair with her and had her husband Uriah, who was one of his 33 mighty men, the best soldiers in his army, he had Uriah killed in battle. And then David covered it all up. Despite this scandal-plagued start, David and Bathsheba have another son later on, and his name was Solomon. And the Lord chose Solomon to follow David on the throne. And so despite starting from this very sketchy past, Bathsheba and Solomon also joined David in this genealogy of Jesus. If I were to use MacArthur's words, I would say grace fell on all three of them as well in the the same manner. These four outcasts reveal to us that this is the genealogy of grace, that these are not perfect people who are in the lineage or the family of Jesus, that they are listed here in the Bible for us to understand their stories and to realize that God brings people from all kinds of walks in life who have made tremendous mistakes, who've been bold and outrageous sinners in the eyes of the world or in the eyes of the religious community or even in the eyes of God. And when their hearts turn toward him in his ways, he enfolds them into the middle of what he is doing. They announce to us that no scandal is so great that God cannot overcome it. They announce to us that no shame is so great that God cannot transform your story or mine. They announce to us that no family record is so dysfunctional that it is beyond the grace of God. Now, 
I know that many of you have been walking with Jesus for some time, but I have also no doubt that there are some, perhaps here in this room this morning or some who are watching us online today, where you have thought, there's no way that God is going to use me in my life. My family background is so dysfunctional. If you only knew, I don't even dare tell the story. Or my personal life has had such wandering away and such messiness. There's no way that God is going to do that kind of work in my life. And I have news for you. When you read the genealogy of Jesus, it blows those ideas completely out of the water and allows us to know that there is no shame so great that God cannot transform your story and your life and bring it into the heart of what He's doing. So, we've made two discoveries so far. The first is that this is the genealogy of a king. Jesus was born to the throne of David. Second, this is the genealogy of grace. The people in the story, the people in the genealogy, some of them were outcasts who come right into the heart of what Jesus is doing. So they're embedded in the Christmas story. Isn't that amazing? Here's a third discovery. It is the genealogy of the Savior. So verse 16 says, And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. How wonderful that Matthew's genealogy takes us all the way to Mary. We move from Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, and David that we talked about last week as we were finishing up that fourth chapter of Ruth to Joseph, Mary, and Jesus this week in another important genealogy. And here's what's amazing. Here are these books that are written about a thousand years apart from each other, and they are all part of the same story. One genealogy leads right into the next. We go seamlessly from Ruth directly into Matthew's gospel. And it tells us about Mary. Here's the great discovery that we learn about Mary when you read all of the gospel narratives in Matthew and Luke about Mary. Mary knew that she needed a savior. If you grew up in a culture that uh, magnified Mary and they made, a, made a, a really central focus on the key of Mary, one of the things you have to tap into was Mary knew that she needed a Savior. In Matthew, the angel of the Lord tells them to give the boy the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, which we sing and which we call and that other people use as a curse word, literally means God save us. Think of that. Next time your friend uses the name of Jesus and you know it's just a throwaway word, you say, wow, that's quite a declaration. And they'll be puzzled and ask, what do you mean? He said, you just made a really bold statement that's at the heart of my faith. The name of Jesus means God's Savior or, or God save us. It's a cry from the heart to God. Just see what happens when you tell them what they've just done. You're not being inaccurate. You're not making something up. You're actually being more... Uh, literally in tune with their curses than they know. In Luke, we find Mary's Magnificat. Sometimes that's been turned into a song in, in some church cultures. But it starts off by saying, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices, and get this, in God my Savior. Now, I don't mean this as an attack, and I don't want it to come off this way, because I know that there are more than half of the people who are part of our congregation who started off in the major branch of the church that I'm talking about. But there's a major branch of the church that tries to present Mary as a co-redeemer with Christ and as born by her own immaculate birth, ideas that are not taught in Scripture. 
But Mary herself, as recorded in the Gospel of Luke, tells us that she rejoices in her Savior. That literally means that Mary knew that she needed a Savior. When you hear the song come out this week or next week, Mary, did you know? And they're not referencing this, but you know something that Mary knew that the song isn't telling us about, that Mary knew that she needed a Savior too. And she rejoices in God, her Savior. Why? Because God was bringing Jesus, his own son, into the world through Mary, and he would save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Savior appointed by God and awaited for generations. And so we sing about the name of Jesus around here. We sing, isn't the name of Jesus wonderful? Isn't the name of Jesus beautiful? Or we sing, all hail the power of Jesus' name, if you come from the older tradition. Or then at Christmas time, come thou long expected Jesus. Or O come, O come, Emmanuel. Or Jesus' name above all names. Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name. One of my favorites that I still sing in this time of year from my boyhood. My Jesus, I love Thee, I know Thou art mine. For these all the follies of sin I resign. My precious Redeemer, my Savior art Thou. If ever I love Thee, my Jesus, tis now. Why do we do that? Why do so many songs sing about Jesus? Why do so many songs that we sing in the older traditions and the newer traditions focus on the name of Jesus? Because the name of Jesus announces that God has brought a Savior into the world who saves us from our sins. We don't have to be ashamed to admit that we've messed up, that we haven't shot as far as or as high as we wanted to, that sometimes we've outright rebelled against God. There are some times when we used the name of Jesus as a curse word, not realizing how tremendous it is. But all wrapped up in the name of Jesus is the message that we need a Savior, and God has brought our Savior into this world. The God who moves outcasts from the margins to the line of grace can redeem your story and my story too. That's what the gospel genealogy teaches us. Okay, what do we do with this? What do we do with these three discoveries from the genealogy, that this is a genealogy of a king, that this is a genealogy of grace, and that this is a genealogy of the Savior? First, if you have embraced all of what I'm saying, and if you see what we're reading here in, in, in these opening verses of Matthew's gospel, recognize that Jesus is the King of kings. So many details of his life and mission support this theme. His kingdom and his reign will be forever. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that one day every knee will bow before him. And every tongue will confess the name of Jesus. Some with great joy. Some to their horror at the end because they rejected him right to the end. 
Will we embrace and serve Christ and his kingdom forever? His kingdom is not from military might. His kingdom is not uh, protected by walls. His kingdom reigns through the hearts and minds of people who surrender to Jesus as their Lord. And that's what Christmas is leading us to do. Second thought, what do we do with this? Remember that Jesus enfolds outcasts in grace. They announce to us that no scandal is so great that God cannot overcome it. No shame is so great that God cannot transform your story as well. No family record is so dysfunctional that it's beyond the grace of God. He offers the miracle of adoption as a child of God at the invitation of Jesus. That's what happens when you put your faith in Jesus. That you become adopted into the family of God with all the legal rights to heaven. We are adopted and legally part of God's family when we engage in this transfer of trust where we say, okay, I'm no longer responsible to bring myself up to God and to perfect myself. I can't do it anyway. And I will allow the grace of God to fall on me because of what Jesus has done for me. And I will humbly receive this gift I don't really deserve, the gift of new life in Christ, new spiritual life that starts now. And third, rejoice that Jesus is our Redeemer King. The Christmas genealogy announces that our King has come at last, in veiled form, born in the manger in Bethlehem, but He's come. The Christmas genealogy fills us with joy that our King redeems outcasts with grace. So even the person who is here almost reluctantly feeling like, I'm the one who's left out, I'm the one who doesn't deserve any of this, you're in the right place if that's the way you feel because he came for people who were standing on the outside. And the Christmas genealogy reminds us that even when you feel like you are on the margins, those who trust in Jesus are not marginal to God at all. You are important. You are important enough for him to send his very best. The God who moves outcast from the margins to the line of grace can and will redeem your story too. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity we have here to turn our eyes toward the Gospels and the coming of Jesus. Thank you that our calendars lead us this way. Thank you that uh, all of the trappings of our decorations that we see in stores and in, in downtown cities and even here at the church lead us to focus on the wonder of what you've done in sending Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would continue to lead us to places where We continually surrender our hearts to King Jesus. We don't understand why you thought we were worthy enough. I don't understand why you chose to include me or any of us, but you have. And so we pray that you would use our faith and our love for Jesus to draw others to understand that there's room for them too in the family of God. So here the person who might be saying, Lord, this is all new to me. Or Lord, I'm so far from your grace. If this is really true, here I come, doubts and all. I'm putting my faith and my trust in Jesus as the Savior you have sent. As the answer to my deep spiritual need. Make me alive on the inside. As I put my faith in him, I I know that I can't bring myself up to you. I know that my sins keep me from that. But forgive me. Wash me clean. Let me start anew. 
Make me alive through your spirit. And allow me this Christmas season to rejoice like I've never rejoiced before. God, I pray that you would put on our hearts others who need to discover their way into a personal relationship with Jesus. Create the opportunity for the conversations where we can simply share what we've come to know and why we're filled with joy in this season. Thank you for the opportunities that Christmas brings. Thank you for the wild cast of characters and even outcasts who are in the genealogy of Jesus. They show us that there's room for us too. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I hope that you grabbed a, uh, a communion kit on the, on the way in. I'd like to read for you some scripture. Since we were reading in Matthew, I'm going to read the section from Matthew 26, where Jesus <clears throat> initiates that last supper, that first communion, if you will, with his disciples. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. If you peel off the bottom lid of that jar, there's a small wafer in there. Take that and we'll we'll eat this together. God, we acknowledge that when we eat this, we recognize that you have sent Jesus in the flesh for us. Thank you for sending Jesus in real time with a real human body to live for us and also to die for us. And so we thank you in his name. Let's eat. The same chapter says that then he took the cup And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Think of this. In one sense, we look back when we have a celebration of communion. But in another sense, we are looking forward in the same passage it says that on the night that Jesus drank this with his disciples he said this is the last time I do this until sometime off in the future when we are all gathered again when God's kingdom has come in all of its fullness and there we will drink it together one day we're going to do this with Jesus so we peel off that top layer and we renew our covenant with Lord Jesus God, thank you for these reminders that Jesus didn't only come as a baby, as wonderful as that scene is, but he also allowed his his body to be broken and his blood shed as the Redeemer who paid the price for our sins. Lord, I pray that you would continue to cleanse us from all of our sins and that you would set us free to really live, to really rejoice, to really grab hold of life in all of its fullness. And I pray that you will make our lives attractive to others who are looking for hope in this Christmas season. I pray that as we move closer and closer toward 
our Christmas Eve celebrations here and our Christmas celebrations at home, that you will allow us to believe to the depths of our being that hope has arrived. Walk with us this week, wherever we go, whatever we do, as your people, as your children, as people of grace, and sometimes as outcasts who've been included in the story of what God is doing in this world. It's in his name we pray.